Chapter Six of the Junior Classics, Volume Seven: Stories of Courage and Heroism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Junior Classics, Volume Seven: Stories of Courage and Heroism by William Patton. Julius Caesar Crossing the Rubicon by Jacob Abbott There was a little stream in ancient times in the north of Italy which flowed eastward into the Adriatic Sea called the Rubicon. This stream has been immortalized by the transactions which we are now about to describe. The Rubicon was a very important boundary and yet it was in itself so small and insignificant that it is now impossible to determine which of two or three little brooks here running into the sea is entitled to its name and renown in history the rubicon is a grand permanent and conspicuous stream gazed upon with continued interest by all mankind for nearly twenty centuries in nature it is an uncertain rivulet for a long time doubtful and undetermined, and finally lost. The Rubicon originally derived its importance from the fact that it was the boundary between all that part of the north of Italy which is formed by the valley of the Po, one of the richest and most magnificent countries of the world, and the more southern Roman territories. This country of the Po constituted what was in those days called the hither gaul and was a roman province it belonged now to caesar's jurisdiction as the commander in gaul all south of the rubicon was territory reserved for the immediate jurisdiction of the city the romans in order to protect themselves from any danger which might threaten their own liberties from the immense armies which they raised for the conquest of foreign nations had imposed on every side very strict limitations and restrictions in respect to the approach of these armies to the capital the rubicon was the limit on this northern side generals commanding in gaul were never to pass it to cross the rubicon with an army on the way to rome was rebellion and treason hence the rubicon became as it were the visible sign and symbol of civil restriction to military power as caesar found the time of his service in gaul drawing toward a conclusion he turned his thoughts more and more toward rome endeavoring to strengthen his interest there by every means in his power and to circumvent and thwart the designs of pompey he had agents and partisans in rome who acted for him and in his name he sent immense sums of money to these men to be employed in such ways as would most tend to secure the favor of the people he ordered the forum to be rebuilt with great magnificence he arranged great celebrations in which the people were entertained with an endless succession of games spectacles and public feasts when his daughter Julia, Pompey's wife, died, he celebrated her funeral with indescribable splendor. 
he distributed corn in immense quantities among the people and he sent a great many captives home to be trained as gladiators to fight in the theatres for their amusement in many cases too where he found men of talents and influence among the populace who had become involved in debt by their dissipations and extravagance he paid their debts and thus secured their influence on his side men were astounded at the magnitude of these expenditures and while the multitude rejoiced thoughtlessly in the pleasures thus provided for them the more reflecting and considerate trembled at the greatness of the power which was so rapidly rising to overshadow the land it increased their anxiety to observe that pompey was gaining the same kind of influence and ascendancy too he had not the advantage which caesar enjoyed in the prodigious wealth obtained from the rich countries over which caesar ruled but he possessed instead of it the advantage of being all the time at rome and of securing by his character and action there a very wide personal popularity and influence pompey was in fact the idol of the people at one time when he was absent from rome at naples he was taken sick after being for some days in considerable danger the crisis passed favorably and he recovered some of the people of naples proposed a public thanksgiving to the gods to celebrate his restoration to health the plan was adopted by acclamation and the example thus set extended from city to city until it had spread throughout italy and the whole country was filled with processions games shows and celebrations which were instituted everywhere in honor of the event and when pompey returned from naples to rome the towns on the way could not afford room for the crowds that came forth to meet him the high roads the villages the ports says plutarch were filled with sacrifices and entertainments many received him with garlands on their heads and torches in their hands and as they conducted him along strewed the way with flowers in fact pompey considered himself as standing far above caesar in fame and power and this general burst of enthusiasm and applause educed by his recovery from sickness confirmed him in this idea he felt no solicitude he said in respect to caesar he should take no special precautions against any hostile designs which he might entertain on his return from gaul it was he himself he said that had raised caesar up to whatever of elevation he had attained and he could put him down even more easily than he had exalted him in the meantime the period was drawing near in which caesar's command in the provinces was to expire and anticipating the struggle with pompey which was about to ensue he conducted several of his legions through the passes of the alps and advanced gradually as he had a right to do across the country of the po toward the rubicon revolving in his capacious mind as he came the various plans by which he might hope to gain the ascendancy over the power of his mighty rival and make himself supreme he concluded 
that it would be his wisest policy not to attempt to intimidate pompey by great and open preparations for war which might tend to arouse him to vigorous measures of resistance but rather to cover and conceal his designs and thus throw his enemy off his guard he advanced therefore toward the rubicon with a small force he established his headquarters at ravenna a city not far from the river and employed himself in objects of local interest there in order to avert as much as possible the minds of the people from imagining that he was contemplating any great design pompey sent to him to demand the return of a certain legion which he had lent him from his own army at a time when they were friends caesar complied with this demand without any hesitation and sent the legion home he sent with this legion also some other troops which were properly his own thus evincing a degree of indifference in respect to the amount of the force retained under his command which seemed wholly inconsistent with the idea that he contemplated any resistance to the authority of the government at rome in the meantime the struggle at rome between the partisans of caesar and pompey grew more and more violent and alarming caesar through his friends in the city demanded to be elected consul the other side insisted that he must first if that was his wish resign the command of his army come to rome and present himself as a candidate in the character of a private citizen this the constitution of the state very properly required in answer to this requisition caesar rejoined that if pompey would lay down his military commands he would do so too if not it was unjust to require it of him the services he added which he had performed for his country demanded some recompense which moreover they ought to be willing to award even if in order to do it it were necessary to relax somewhat in his favor the strictness of ordinary rules to a large part of the people of the city these demands of caesar appeared reasonable they were clamorous to have them allowed the partisans of pompey with the stern and inflexible cato at their head deemed them wholly inadmissible and contended with the most determined violence against them the whole city was filled with the excitement of this struggle into which all the active and turbulent spirits of the capital plunged with the most furious zeal while the more considerate and thoughtful of the population remembering the days of marius and sylla trembled at the impending danger pompey himself had no fear he urged the senate to resist to the utmost all of caesar's claims saying if caesar should be so presumptuous as to attempt to march to rome he could raise troops enough by stamping with his foot to put him down it would require a volume to contain a full account of the disputes and tumults the manoeuvres and debates the votes and decrees which marked the successive stages of this quarrel pompey himself was all the time without the city he was in command of an army there and no general while in command was allowed to come within the gates at last an exciting debate was broken up in the senate by one of the consuls rising to depart 
saying that he would hear the subject discussed no longer the time had arrived for action and he should send a commander with an armed force to defend the country from caesar's threatened invasion caesar's leading friends two tribunes of the people disguised themselves as slaves and fled to the north to join their master the country was filled with commotion and panic the commonwealth had obviously more fear of caesar than confidence in pompey the country was full of rumors in respect to caesar's power and the threatening attitude which he was assuming while they who had insisted on resistance seemed after all to have provided very inadequate means with which to resist a thousand plans were formed and clamorously insisted upon by their respective advocates for averting the danger this only added to the confusion and the city became at length pervaded with a universal terror while this was the state of things at rome caesar was quietly established at ravenna thirty or forty miles from the frontier he was erecting a building for a fencing school there and his mind seemed to be occupied very busily with the plans and models of the edifice which the architects had formed of course in his intended march to rome his reliance was not to be so much on the force which he should take with him as on the cooperation and support which he expected to find there it was his policy therefore to move as quietly and privately as possible and with as little display of violence and to avoid everything which might indicate his intended march to any spies which might be around him or to any other persons who might be disposed to report what they observed at rome accordingly on the very eve of his departure he busied himself with his fencing school and assumed with his officers and soldiers a careless and unconcerned air which prevented any one from suspecting his design in the course of the day he privately sent forward some cohorts to the southward with orders for them to encamp on the banks of the rubicon when night came he sat down to supper as usual and conversed with his friends in his ordinary manner and went with them afterward to a public entertainment as soon as it was dark and the streets were still he set off secretly from the city accompanied by a very few attendants instead of making use of his ordinary equipage the parading of which would have attracted attention to his movements he had some mules taken from a neighboring bakehouse and harnessed into his chaise there were torch-bearers provided to light the way the cavalcade drove on during the night finding however the hasty preparations which had been made inadequate for the occasion the torches went out the guides lost their way and the future conqueror of the world wandered about bewildered and lost until just after break of day the party met with a peasant who undertook to guide them under his direction they made their way to the main road again and advanced then without further difficulty to the banks of the river where they found that portion of the army which had been sent forward encamped and awaiting their arrival caesar stood for some time upon the banks of the stream musing upon the greatness of the undertaking in which simply passing across it would involve him his officers stood by his side 
we can retreat now said he but once across that river we must go on he paused for some time conscious of the vast importance of the decision though he thought only doubtless of its consequences to himself taking the step which was now before him would necessarily end either in his realizing the loftiest aspirations of his ambition or in his utter and irreparable ruin there were vast public interests too at stake of which however he probably thought but little it proved in the end that the history of the whole roman world for several centuries was depending upon the manner in which the question now in caesar's mind should turn there was a little bridge across the rubicon at the point where caesar was surveying it while he was standing there the story is a peasant or shepherd came from the neighboring fields with a shepherd's pipe a simple musical instrument made of a reed and used much by the rustic musicians of those days the soldiers and some of the officers gathered around him to hear him play among the rest came some of caesar's trumpeters with their trumpets in their hands the shepherd took one of these martial instruments from the hands of its possessor laying aside his own and began to sound a charge which is a signal for a rapid advance and to march at the same time over the bridge an omen a prodigy said caesar let us march where we are called by such a divine intimation the die is cast so saying he pressed forward over the bridge while the officers breaking up the encampment put the columns in motion to follow him it was shown abundantly on many occasions in the course of caesar's life that he had no faith in omens there are equally numerous instances to show that he was always ready to avail himself of the popular belief in them to awaken his soldiers ardor or to allay their fears whether therefore in respect to this story of the shepherd trumpeter it was an incident that really and accidentally occurred or whether caesar planned and arranged it himself with reference to its effect or whether which is perhaps after all the most probable supposition the tale was only an embellishment invented out of something or nothing by the storytellers of those days to give additional dramatic interest to the narrative of the crossing of the rubicon it must be left for each reader to decide as soon as the bridge was crossed caesar called an assembly of his troops and with signs of great excitement and agitation made an address to them on the magnitude of the crisis through which they were passing he showed them how entirely he was in their power he urged them by the most eloquent appeals to stand by him faithful and true promising them the most ample rewards when he should have attained the object at which he aimed the soldiers responded to this appeal with promises of the most unwavering fidelity the first town on the roman side of the rubicon was ariminum caesar advanced to this town the authorities opened its gates to him very willing as it appeared to receive him as their commander caesar's force was yet quite small as he had been accompanied by only a single legion in crossing the river 
he had however sent orders for the other legions which had been left in gaul to join him without any delay though any reinforcement of his troops seemed hardly necessary as he found no indications of opposition to his progress he gave his soldiers the strictest injunctions to do no injury to any property public or private as they advanced and not to assume in any respect a hostile attitude toward the people of the country the inhabitants therefore welcomed him wherever he came and all the cities and towns followed the example of ariminum surrendering in fact faster than he could take possession of them in the confusion of the debates and votes in the senate at rome before caesar crossed the rubicon one decree had been passed deposing him from his command of the army and appointing a successor the name of the general thus appointed was domitius the only real opposition which caesar encountered in his progress toward rome was from him domitius had crossed the apennines at the head of an army on his way northward to supersede caesar in his command and had reached the town of corfinium which was perhaps one-third of the way between rome and the rubicon caesar advanced upon him here and shut him in after a brief siege the city was taken and domitius and his army were made prisoners everybody gave them up for lost expecting that caesar would wreak terrible vengeance upon them instead of this he received the troops at once into his own service and let domitius go free in the meantime the tidings of caesar's having passed the rubicon and of the triumphant success which he was meeting with at the commencement of his march toward rome reached the capital and added greatly to the prevailing consternation the reports of the magnitude of his force and of the rapidity of his progress were greatly exaggerated the party of pompey and the senate had done everything to spread among the people the terror of caesar's name in order to arouse them to efforts for opposing his designs and now when he had broken through the barriers which had been intended to restrain him and was advancing toward the city in an unchecked and triumphant career they were overwhelmed with dismay pompey began to be terrified at the danger which was impending the senate held meetings without the city councils of war as it were in which they looked to pompey in vain for protection from the danger which he had brought upon them he had said that he could raise an army sufficient to cope with caesar at any time by stamping with his foot they told him they thought now that it was high time for him to stamp in fact pompey found the current setting everywhere strongly against him some recommended that commissioners should be sent to caesar to make proposals for peace the leading men however knowing that any peace made with him under such circumstances would be their own ruin resisted and defeated the proposal cato abruptly left the city and proceeded to sicily which had been assigned him as his province others fled in other directions pompey himself uncertain what to do and not daring to remain called upon all his partisans to join him and set off at night suddenly and with very little preparation and small supplies 
to retreat across the country toward the shores of the Adriatic Sea. His destination was Brundusium, the usual port of embarkation for Macedon and Greece. Caesar was all this time gradually advancing toward Rome. His soldiers were full of enthusiasm in his cause as his connection with the government at home was sundered the moment he crossed the rubicon all supplies of money and of provisions were cut off in that quarter until he should arrive at the capital and take possession of it the soldiers voted however that they would serve him without pay the officers too assembled together and tendered him the aid of their contributions he had always observed a very generous policy in his dealings with them, and he was now greatly gratified at receiving their requital of it. The further he advanced, too, the more he found the people of the country through which he passed disposed to espouse his cause. They were struck with his generosity in releasing Domitius. It is true that it was a very sagacious policy that prompted him to release him, but then it was generosity too in fact there must be something of a generous spirit in the soul to enable a man even to see the policy of generous actions among the letters of caesar that remain to the present day there is one written about this time to one of his friends in which he speaks of this subject i am glad says he that you approve of my conduct at corfinium I am satisfied that such a course is the best one for us to pursue, as by so doing we shall gain the good will of all parties, and thus secure a permanent victory. Most conquerors have incurred the hatred of mankind by their cruelties, and have all, in consequence of the enmity they have thus awakened, been prevented from long enjoying their power. Scylla was an exception, but his example of successful cruelty I have no disposition to imitate. I will conquer after a new fashion, and fortify myself in the possession of the power I acquire by generosity and mercy. Domitius had the ingratitude after this release to take up arms again and wage a new war against Caesar. When Caesar heard of it, he said it was all right. I will act out the principles of my nature, said he and he may act out his. Another instance of Caesar's generosity occurred, which is even more remarkable than this. It seems that among the officers of his army there were some whom he had appointed at the recommendation of Pompey at the time when he and Pompey were friends. These men would, of course, feel under obligations of gratitude to Pompey as they owed their military rank to his friendly interposition in their behalf. As soon as the war broke out, Caesar gave them all his free permission to go over to Pompey's side, if they chose to do so. Caesar acted thus very liberally in all respects. He surpassed Pompey very much in the spirit of generosity and mercy with which he entered upon the great contest before them. Pompey ordered every citizen to join his standard, declaring that he should consider all neutrals as his enemies. Caesar, on the other hand, gave free permission to everyone to decline if he chose 
taking part in the contest saying that he should consider all who did not act against him as his friends in the political contests of our day it is to be observed that the combatants are much more prone to imitate the bigotry of pompey than the generosity of caesar condemning as they often do those who choose to stand aloof from electioneering struggles more than they do their most determined opponents and enemies when at length caesar arrived at brundusium he found that pompey had sent a part of his army across the adriatic into greece and was waiting for the transports to return that he might go over himself with the remainder in the meantime he had fortified himself strongly in the city caesar immediately laid siege to the place and he commenced some works to block up the mouth of the harbor he built piers on each side extending out as far into the sea as the depth of the water would allow them to be built he then constructed a series of rafts which he anchored on the deep water in a line extending from one pier to the other he built towers upon these rafts and garrisoned them with soldiers in hopes by this means to prevent all egress from the fort he thought that when this work was completed pompey would be entirely shut in beyond all possibility of escape the transports however returned before the work was completed its progress was of course slow as the constructions were the scene of a continued conflict for pompey sent out rafts and galleys against them every day and the workmen had thus to build in the midst of continual interruptions sometimes from showers of darts arrows and javelins sometimes from the conflagrations of fire-ships and sometimes from the terrible concussions of great vessels of war impelled with prodigious force against them the transports returned therefore before the defences were complete and contrived to get into the harbour pompey immediately formed his plan for embarking the remainder of his army he filled the streets of the city with barricades and pitfalls excepting two streets which led to the place of embarkation the object of these obstructions was to embarrass caesar's progress through the city in case he should force an entrance while his men were getting on board the ships he then in order to divert caesar's attention from his design doubled the guards stationed upon the walls on the evening of his intended embarkation and ordered them to make vigorous attacks upon all caesar's forces outside then when the darkness came on he marched his troops through the two streets which had been left open to the landing-place and got them as fast as possible on board the transports some of the people of the town contrived to make known to caesar's army what was going on by means of signals from the walls the army immediately brought scaling ladders in great numbers and mounting the walls with great ardor and impetuosity they drove all before them and soon broke open the gates and got possession of the city but the barricades and pitfalls together with the darkness so embarrassed their movements that pompey succeeded in completing his embarkation and sailing away caesar had no ships in which to follow 
he returned to rome he met of course with no opposition he re-established the government there organized the senate anew and obtained supplies of corn from the public granaries and of money from the city treasury in the capital in going to the capitoline hill after this treasure he found the officer who had charge of the money stationed there to defend it he told caesar that it was contrary to law for him to enter caesar said that for men with swords in their hands there was no law the officer still refused to admit him caesar then told him to open the doors or he would kill him on the spot and you must understand he added that it will be easier for me to do it than it has been to say it the officer resisted no longer and caesar went in after this caesar spent some time in vigorous campaigns in italy spain sicily and gaul wherever there was manifested any opposition to his sway when this work was accomplished and all these countries were completely subjected to his dominion he began to turn his thoughts to the plan of pursuing pompey across the adriatic sea End of Julius Caesar Crossing the Rubicon by Jacob Abbott